Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke, but I won't be your host for today's episode of Work With Purpose. That honour goes to Michael Sinise, who is not only a senior manager in consulting at PricewaterhouseCoopers, but he is also, importantly, a member of the IPA ACT Future Leaders Committee. He is in conversation today with Alison Playford from the ACT government and Dr Rachel Bacon, who is a Deputy Secretary at the Department of Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development and Communications. And the conversation today is about COVID, but it's the impact of COVID on infrastructure and indeed the role of cross-jurisdictional cooperation. It's a great conversation and please enjoy it. And it starts with Michael Sinise. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Work With Purpose. My name is Michael Sinise, and I'm a Senior Manager at PwC in our Workforce and Change Consulting Practice and member of IPA ACT's Future Leaders Committee, and I'll be your host today. I begin today's podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we're meeting today, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the ongoing contribution they make to the life of our city and this region. Today's conversation explores how COVID has impacted planning on long-term infrastructure projects and what our transport and cities will look like in the future as a direct or indirect result of that. We'll also talk about collaborating across jurisdictions, including looking at some of the challenges and successes. Today's guests are Alison Playford, Director General of Transport Canberra and City Services, or the TCCS, and Dr Rachel Bacon, Deputy Secretary for the Regional and Territories Group at the Department of Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development and Communications. Alison Playford has over 30 years public sector experience in both the Commonwealth and ACT government. Alison moved to the ACT government first as Deputy Director General, then as Director General at the ACT Justice and Community Safety Directorate, JACS. She commenced her role as Director General of Transport Canberra and City Services in May 2019, where she is involved in delivering essential services Canberraans rely on each day. She's held positions in the Commonwealth Department of Finance, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, and the Attorneys General Department. Prior to her role at Infrastructure, Rachel Bacon worked in the Department of Environment and Energy, running the Policy Analysis and Implementation Division, and as Deputy Chief Executive Officer with the Northern Territory Government's Department of the Chief Minister. Rachel previously led a number of task forces based in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, working to deliver whole of government priorities in areas such as environment regulation reform and Australia's engagement with Asia. Alison and Rachel, welcome to Work With Purpose. So I'm going to kick off with an opening question. Um, We've all been through a number of changes over the last few years and very keen to hear your perspective from a policy and planning perspective and how we're moving forward in this new world. Um, Alison, I might start with yourself. What are some of the challenges for planning long-term infrastructure projects in the COVID environment? 
Uh, thanks, Michael. I think one of the things from the last couple of years is uncertainty and having to grapple with uncertainty and look to trends. And clearly the way society operates has changed. We have seen an uptake of people using um, active travel. We've seen a downturn in use of public transport. We've seen people um, change their work styles and habits and predicting whether those which of those things will stick and which of them um, will revert back um, is something that's always a challenge for planners but um, I think where the ACT is taking things is really consistent with our transport strategy which um, was released last year around looking at I guess, long-term, expecting our city to continue to grow, to continue to face issues of congestion. So looking at how we can um, facilitate a recovery and return to public transport and how we can enhance our investment in active travel to actually capitalise and leverage off some of the things that have happened during COVID. Um, I guess the other thing I'd just add is one of the other challenges is just um, the global market that we're delivering um, infrastructure projects in. And we saw some very welcome investments from the Commonwealth Government last year in a range of infrastructure projects and um, also by state and territory governments as well. And that has led to um, record levels of infrastructure developments in um, across Australia and that's been fantastic for the economy and keeping the economy going during this period of COVID but we are now facing challenges in terms of market and supply chain issues where we rely on a lot of um, products etc and specialists as well from overseas and other jurisdictions. Yeah that might be a really good segue to Rachel. Um, what about yourself you know the, the, the challenges with long-term planning we, we've seen um, government investing in these long-term infrastructure projects. Have you got any uh, insights around the challenges for planning in this environment? Yeah, and it's a really good point, Michael, and just building on what Alison said. I think when COVID hit, we are kind of slipped into a bit of an abyss of the unknown, really. Like, yeah, everyone was talking about the U-curve, but no one knew how deep that U would get and how, how wide the bottom of the U-curve was before we'd start kind of coming out the other side um, of the pandemic. And one of the challenges that we face, not so much with, you know, the amazing work that Alison and, and her colleagues in other states and territories did around emergency stimulus and that kind of really emergency response, um, one, of the, one of the things that was a big unknown for us, both in uh, the regional space and also with my hat um, running us uh, with uh, the cities division in my group as well, was what are the medium to longer term trends here? Like what impacts uh, is COVID and the impacts of responses to COVID around lockdowns and restrictions? Um, what impacts um, are they going to have uh, in the short term, sorry, in the medium to longer term? And because it's a really unknown area, one of the challenges, I think, when it comes to planning kind of post your stimulus and emergency response phase is what's your data? Like having not had a global pandemic for 100 years, a lot's changed in 100 years. How do we actually plan for the unknown in terms of what impact COVID and, and the responses to COVID are going to have in you know, six months, 12 months, five years, 10 years time? So we actually did a, a really rapid but very comprehensive piece of data analysis uh, where we looked at a whole range of data sources to figure out 
what are the what are the trends that we think are going to flow from COVID in the medium term, and then which of those trends might be sticky? In other words, out of all of the things that we're seeing at the moment that's happening in the data that we can get hold of quickly, uh, what are the trends that that might be a blip? Because as soon as lockdowns ease or we get to a certain level of vaccination in the population, some things might revert to as they were pre-pandemic. And I think we're seeing a little bit of that in some of the tenancy rates and occupancy rates in CBD office buildings, depending on whether there's lockdowns or not in different cities. Um, but are there longer run trends that are sticky? Like, for example, we've seen greater movement of population from the cities to regions. So 43,000 net um, population shift from capital cities to the regions um, compared to the previous year. And um, some of the other trends uh, that we think might be stickier are working from home, for example, and that flexibility in work that there's a lot of commentary about at the moment. So uh, some of those some of those trends um, and kind of trying to get as much data as we could, actually to then plug that into to factor that into policy consideration and policy making over the next you know six to twelve months to support an economic recovery in the medium to longer term post-COVID, it was really that data piece that we felt we had to do some quick work on so that we actually had at least some reference point when we're making policy in such a, you know, an unknown uh, once in a century environment. Yeah, I think that the, the, the data piece is really important. I think the census, I'm sure we're all eagerly awaiting the updates to the census mid next year. And I'm sure, I'm sure that will validate some of those. Um, Alison, you spoke a little bit around the strategy around transport. Um, how how did the strategy come to life? And, and was that strategy uh, updated in light of um, our COVID environment? And what role did data play in that? Um, well, the strategy actually was something we'd been working on well before COVID hit, but it was really timely to focus attention and really it fits with a number of other strategies that the ACT government has around planning, around climate change, um, and they're, they're probably the two key ones, but looking at how we can see things holistically. Um, but we did look at what was happening in terms of road usage, et cetera, public transport patronage, et cetera, um, but we were trying to look to the long term. This is a long term strategy and looking to, um, again, at what Rachel talked about and what, what we think will happen to Canberra's population longer term and some of the things that we have planned um, in terms of key infrastructure projects, um, which really are supportive of public transport and improving um, active travel and access and a little bit more focus on, I guess, the placemaking. And, you know, when Rachel talks about regional, she means something very different to when I talk about regional in an ACT sense, which is very local. But Canberra has always, to an extent, you know, focused on that placemaking and, you know, the different town and group centres and different districts. And, um Thinking about our transport needs at a really local level as well as a holistic ACT level has been really kind of key to the transport strategy, which really fit in well with, I guess, COVID and what we saw with people um, changing their work and their shopping and other habits and very much more focused on their local and regional areas. 
Um, and that's we we think some of that will be there will be some long term trends. So that that's really guiding, I guess, our investment decisions going forward. But as I said, it's also guided by our longer term planning strategy and climate change strategies, etc., which do point to moving people back onto public transport. So underneath our transport strategy, we have actually developed a recover a, a COVID recovery plan. Um, we started to implement it towards the end of last year and, of course, I've had to um, and into this new year. Um, got a little bit um, off track for a little while, but we'll be dusting that off again and um, looking at how we can attract people back to public transport in particular and providing, I guess, confidence about the safety of that as a mode of travel because we think that is really key to what the future needs to be in the ACT where um, not like the big cities of Sydney and Melbourne, we don't have the existing congestion issues to the same extent, but we do certainly already have pinch points. And with major um, infrastructure planned in the centre of our city in coming years, we really want to um, give, give options for people in terms of how they travel around. Yeah, that's really interesting how you've had to pivot with the recovery plan a couple times. Um, what does recovery look like for um, ACT transport services? Um, as I've talked about before, the first thing really is um, instilling that consumer confidence in the service. And there's a range of things that we implemented um, during COVID around um, cleaning schedules, around social distancing, around providing check-in facilities on all of our buses. Our 467 buses each have a unique check-in code. Um, around mask wearing instructions, around um, cashless fit, uh, cashless service. Um, and so providing that kind of confidence and safety. And it's been interesting, you know, we're only a couple of weeks out of lockdown in the ACT. We are seeing a student-led resurgence back onto public transport, which does speak to, I think, a public, broader public confidence um, that parents have. And it will be interesting to see. It's very early days in terms of data on that at the moment. Um, but really, uh, a, a, the key to our strategy is around building that confidence, but also providing a lot more information to, I guess, non-public transport users across the ACT around what, what services we do have available and how it can be, I, I guess, an attractive alternative for them. Um, to do what they need to do. That's probably the other really key thing. And we're very conscious of that, as I said before. We've got some really major infrastructure developments happening right in the centre of our city with the raising of London Circuit and the next stage of our light rail over the next, um, I guess, five-year periods, as well as a range of private developments that will be happening in the middle of the city. So we are anticipating some congestion issues in the city and our transport recovery strategy for COVID actually has an eye to looking at how we can mitigate some of the impacts for Canberrans um, while some of that really key long-term infrastructure that we talked about in the first question um, actually gets delivered. Yeah, um, and Rachel, uh, I guess we're hearing from the, the local uh, view around congestion and transport and where the, the future investment um, is at a local level. Um, what about from a national perspective? Um, how have we seen any changes to planning approaches or, or considerations with those population trends? Mm. Um, yeah, it's a good question and um, probably one a bit more for my infrastructure and transport colleagues um, who would be spending more time kind of thinking about those issues. But 
I guess in terms of, uh, you know, from my perspective, from that kind of regional cities perspective, um, part of it is about how do we back in some of the trends that we've been seeing nationally. So, you know, those trends around um, more, more people moving to the regions, less people moving from regions to cities, um, and also a greater proportion of families moving to regions as well, which you can kind of get if, if you know, you've got families stuck in, um, uh, stuck in an apartment or a house with not much backyard uh, during lockdowns. You can kind of understand why there, there might be a bit of a desire to move either to places like Canberra where there's a bit more space or to regional areas. Uh, one of the things that that government's really keen to do in this space is actually back in the trends that we're seeing in those population shifts, which have been really exacerbated by COVID. They were to some extent there before uh, before COVID, but have really been, I think, fast-tracked or intensified by COVID. And one of the one of the questions is, well, how does infrastructure keep pace if you're getting um, more people? you know, shifting to regional areas, which is a good thing for a range of reasons, in, including, I think, from, from a national resilience perspective and, and also from an economic uh, economic growth perspective in regional Australia. Um, what do you need to keep pace with those trends? So I think we've seen quite a lot of commentary from people in the regions, from stakeholders in the media around housing constraints, for example, in regional areas, um, as well as some skills constraints. From a national perspective, I think we're looking at how we can back in states uh, and territory governments um, to kind of keep pace with the demands when it comes to infrastructure planning. Um, some of the things that we're talking about um, in a couple of our city deals, for example, is how do we support state and local governments to, to keep pace um, with things like the housing planning pipelines, for example. Um, and you've got, you know, some... Uh, some kind of architecture in the Commonwealth, uh, for example, in the housing space with loan facilities and things like that. So I think in part it's how do we how do we keep pace with changing demand and population shifts? Um, I mean, Alison's point about kind of focusing on Canberra and and um, and that's that's the remit. Particularly, I get it with the public transport system. That kind of broader regional picture. Canberra is a really integral part of. Um, you know, a broader region that, that stretches, um, you know, to the Snowies and then down to Eden um, and and that part of New South Wales, um, where there's really good cooperation, I think, that I've observed between ACT and New South Wales governments, thinking about the Canberra region and Canberra as a really important kind of service hub within that region. Um, so from the Commonwealth perspective in that regionalisation space, it's how can we work better um, and align effort better with state and territory colleagues, with local government colleagues um, uh, in the other states uh, and kind of make sure that that effort is aligned so that we can keep pace with with change, changing demographics and changing, uh, ch changing trends in terms of economic growth um, and make sure that, you know, planning efforts are aligned to that. Yeah, Mike, about that. Oh, sorry, I'm just going to jump in there with um, Rachel's observations around Canberra as a region. I really think COVID made it really clear how much Canberra and the ACT actually has seamless borders with New South Wales and much of our key um, 
important critical essential workforces um, are actually located in New South Wales. Um, we're probably the key health hub for that south um, east corner of New South Wales. So um, I guess the opportunities to um, collaborate with New South Wales in particular, um, but with other states and territories as well, has never been stronger as we kind of facilitate. And so I guess the standard models of federation haven't worked so well for COVID, which hasn't really respected those borders. And so, you know, there's a constant conversation around um, how we can facilitate thinking about things on a more regional basis. And, and for much of our infrastructure projects, actually some of the key projects in New South Wales, um, some of the road duplications and stuff, which will actually make it easier for some of our key workforces um, are really important to us. And we're very supportive of you know, the Commonwealth investment in some of those things um, because of the impacts for people who you know, work in the ACT. But similarly for New South Wales, I think in particular, our whole system um, is seen very much and operates in the funding models operate in terms of a regional basis. And that's something that increasingly in this infrastructure area, it's important to look at things in a regional way. And um, waste infrastructure is a really good example of that where, um, you know, Canberra as a mid-sized city, actually, we have the functions of local government and much of the waste infrastructure is actually delivered at a local government area. And so we're very much, um, I guess, less talking to our counterparts in the big cities and more talking to regional councils. And our minister has a you know, meeting, regular meeting with regional councillors around what the waste strategy for our region should be and infrastructure needs into the future, because that's one of, it's a slightly different topic to what we're talking about today, but, you know, a growing wicked problem. Thank you. Yeah, I know you'd speak to those different levels of government and the need for, um, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of different ways to collaborate across jurisdictions. Um, and you also spoke about keeping pace. So over the last twelve months, we've we've changed ways of working, and we're we're kind of um, adapting to kind of the, the immediacy of what the data is telling us. How did you keep pace in such an ambiguous and complex um, uh, arrangement? And particularly when you're collaborating across jurisdictions even more, what worked well? I might play Alison. Um, I think what worked well is right from really early on, we already had established forums for communications across jurisdictions, but both at a ministerial level and also at officials level, there was a range of, I guess, sub-forums where it was really useful to share information and particularly for a small jurisdiction like the ACT um, to leverage off the learnings of bigger jurisdictions and some of the jurisdictions that were going through things that we could foresee we might well need to um, deal with those challenges. Um, so a good example would be in public transport, some of the kind of pivots that were made in um, New South Wales and Victoria that we could see were very easy for us having been part of those um, working groups in relation to kind of transport, et cetera, to be able to sort of say, okay, well, we should do one, two, three, four. This has obviously worked, this hasn't. Um, and I think there was great cooperation and also, you know, at the ministerial level, you know, we didn't just meet twice a um, year as we normally do. We um, held teleconferences. Oh, it felt like at least every couple of weeks um, and probably was that um, at some points during this period. Um, so really good sharing, I guess, um, at officials level in particular about what we were facing and the uncertainty we were facing and what the options were. And also looking um, even more broadly at internationally and what was happening and learnings there. So some of our 
advocacy organisations, etc., are tapped into international organisations, and there were some really great um, uh, opportunities for that. The UITP um, transport network um, was a really good example where they were able to facilitate some really great conversations at a global level on what was being experienced and what options were for the public transport space is one example. Mm. And um, just to build on that, Michael, as well, what Alison's saying, we, we found, and particularly so in uh, back in March 2020, when I think it was a very big unknown and we were seeing what was happening overseas and some, you know, pretty scary uh, kind of reports coming in from what was happening in some countries uh, when we were a fair way off from, from having a vaccine for the pandemic. Um, and we started asking that question pretty early on back in March, you know, what impact is this actually having out in the regions? Because we were experiencing what we were experiencing you know, for, for me, that was in Canberra. For my state and territory colleagues, it was more likely to be in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Perth, Adelaide, etc. Um, and we all collectively felt we actually needed to get a handle on what was going on in, um, in the regions because our sense was that this was going to be impacting different regions quite differently. Um, so, for example, and, you know, our data kind of bore this out, but Cairns was hit really early and really hard when the Chinese tourism market was switched off. So when we closed international borders, um, the, the kind of mainstay of the economy, local economy in Cairns around international tourism just crashed. Um, one of the things we found also is that when China locked down, you had um, like lobster crayfish um, fisheries, like around um, the bottom of South Australia, kind of really impacted because they couldn't actually ship their product um, to China for, uh, you know, the big New Year celebrations is when they shift um, a lot of their product with quite, you know, just-in-time supply chains. So we kind of said with our state and territory colleagues, we actually need a handle on what's going on um, because it can look different in different places. And if we actually want to respond with emergency support, we need to know what kind of support that needs to be and... Um, and how we target it. And so it was actually one of the things I'm proudest of in my career, probably the way that um, I run a deputy senior officials um, or chair and support a deputy senior officials group of the regional um, guys across all of the different states and territories. And we basically set up a, a data project where all of our data experts did in about six weeks, what I think would ordinarily probably have taken about nine months to do but we really pushed it and fast-tracked it and threw some resource at it, worked across jurisdictions to pull data, and out of that we ended up with a really useful data tool that kind of plotted which juris um, which um, regions at the SA4 level, so, you know, um, reasonably granular below the state level, what, was, what impact was COVID having in different regional areas um, and it was off the back of that that we were able to respectively, you know, take what we'd worked on together and actually look at how to work that into policy responses and that kind of then fed into, for us at Commonwealth level, fed into a pretty substantial uh, regional budget package in the October 2020 budget. So that was a really interesting, interesting example of collaborating, you know, between all of the jurisdictions because we're all in the same difficult spot, all worrying about the same thing, but we all had different resources to bring to bear to help, you know, collectively solve a problem of trying to figure out what's happening. Um, yeah, so I think that was a really 
a really good example of, of some of that um, cross-jurisdictional collaboration that we worked in a different way. We wouldn't have ordinarily done that if we'd just been in a BAU world. It talks to that place-based policymaking, um, and, and it sounds to me that COVID has fundamentally shifted the way that we approach some of these challenges. Um, how much do you think of that will stick and be a change the way that we do this into the future? Um, and, and do you think it will uh, help make more livable cities and towns? Uh, Rachel? I'm happy, I'm happy to have a first crack at that, Alison, if you like. Um, it's kind of what I talk <laughs> about with my, with my team um, and ministers every day. I actually don't think COVID has changed the way, fundamentally, the way that we do place-based. Um, I mean, I would say that there are three elements of place-based approaches. Um, one is that you have the three levels of government working together, so you, you just kind of try and align effort across different levels of government. The second is um, listening to and understanding what the priorities are in a particular community. So trying to get a sense of what the community thinks about their priorities in a particular region. Um, the other one, I think, is for the Commonwealth, um, this can be particularly helpful when we do this well, is actually joining up across the Commonwealth, you know, because we're quite a large beast uh, in the Commonwealth. And it's um, actually about what levers do you need to draw from across all the different portfolios in the Commonwealth Government um, to have those, again, working in a way that is coordinated and strategically directed effort. Um, as you're also joining up across three levels of government. So I think good place-based approaches will have some combination of those three features, whether we're in a COVID crisis or a COVID rebuild or a BAU scenario. The other thing that I don't think changes, whether you have COVID or not, is that different regions need different things and a one-size-fits-all approach often will be the most efficient but won't always be the most effective in terms of um, generating outcomes. And you don't, like, I would not advocate um, using a place-based approach all the time by any means because it is much more resource intensive to do it that way. There's a real, um, I think often there's an um, efficiency effectiveness trade-off and sometimes it's just far more efficient to kind of take a, a you know, a more national or a more, um, you know, state or territory-based approach to something. But where a place-based approach is warranted, because that's the kind of outcome that you need, um, it's about, I think, tailoring responses and understanding a place more deeply and tailoring different responses to the needs and, and challenges in a particular place. Um, yeah, so... I think the, the fundamentals of place-based approaches kind of stay the same. The way we deployed them in the COVID scenario look quite different, but, you know, I'm sure Alison probably has some examples of that as well. Um, thanks, and I was actually going to echo much of what Rachel said. I think the fundamentals of place-based and placemaking actually are the same and during COVID we applied them in a similar way and it really is and it's something we've done in the ACT for a long time very strong community engagement and understanding what your community needs and trying to respond to that and I agree with um, Rachel you know sometimes there is that trade-off between efficiency and effectiveness and there was times during COVID where it was really important that things were looked at at a national level and you know one thing I'd give a shout out to the Commonwealth for was their leadership in terms of um, freight policy and um, developing the freight strategy because really early on um, I think you know with the great 
toilet paper wars of March 2020, um, people quickly realised that supply chains were something that we really needed to crack and um, make sure that they could be kept going. And um, the that freight-based strategy was mostly a land-based um, strategy, but it also actually really started in terms of the ports and the, you know, getting international shipping, still delivering supplies to Australia was probably the first fundamental place. And there was great goodwill between all the jurisdictions because, you know, stuff was landing somewhere but actually was required right across Australia. So, you know, there are points where, you know, that that leadership from the Commonwealth to help facilitate um, states and territories um, in both the port strategy and the freight strategy was really critical, um, I think, during that COVID period and kind of cuts across much of the other work we were doing, which was much more local and looking at the needs of individual communities. Um, and even within Canberra, we were looking at, you know, differentiated policy responses in different places and how the pandemic impacted on different regions at different times and where we required different parts of our emergency response, be it testing or um, vaccinations or whatever, in terms of different groups within our community as well. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's really interesting to hear. And you, you also spoke about the supply and demand, um, you know, complexities within the um, ambiguous environment. Um, where do you see planning around supply and demand within ambiguity moving forward, um, Alison? It's an interesting question. I, th I think we're going to have a little bit of wait and see, but again, keep monitoring the data. Um, but I, I think we're just uh, apply many of the principles we've been applying to good policy making um, in my 30 years as a public servant, which is um, really trying to understand what is the problem you're trying to solve, what are the issues, what are people saying, um, and what's the best way to resolve something, um, and just kind of be a bit flexible. I think another thing that COVID has taught us is that we can really accelerate change. And there's some remarkable examples of what we were able to achieve and innovate um, just the way we moved our workforces to working seamlessly with video technology like we're using today um, was just a great example of what we can do. And hopefully, you know, I am hopeful that we'll kind of remember some of those lessons of what we actually have achieved and be able to um, apply them in the future as we face more challenges. And just to add to what Alison's saying there, the, the only other thing I'd add is not not only what we've achieved, but also how we've achieved it. So, um, you know, I think often in the Commonwealth state space um, and including with local government and the ACT, uh, you're both, but it, it's the, the more opportunities we have to really pull together and work together as public services across different jurisdictions, it really deepens relationships and it also demonstrates that you can get stuff done when you're working closely with aren't always able to do that. Sometimes our political environments in which, you know, um, our ministers work um, are more or less conducive to that. But I think the more examples we have, the more lived examples we have of when we worked with these jurisdictions and all pulled together, it was a, a much better result than what we could have achieved on our own. I think the more examples we have of that, then the more we're incentivised to find those opportunities where we have those windows of opportunity to work in that way. Um, and, you know, from, from my perspective, all of the outcomes that I'm achieving for my ministers can only be achieved um, if we're working as collaboratively as we can with colleagues across jurisdictions.
Yeah. And look, and I can think of, you know, some examples of where we're trying to apply that in policy spaces we're facing now, the um, movement of our um, public transport uh, vehicles to zero emissions is something that most of the jurisdictions in Australia are doing. So a small state, a small territory like the ACT can really leverage off learnings from bigger jurisdictions in that. And those relationships are really important to have those shared understandings as we face, you know, difficult policy transitions. Yeah, the, the lessons learned component, um, you know, I think it's really important for many of the things that we've achieved over the last 12, 18 months to be really embedded into the way that we work. How do you go about kind of capturing those lessons learned with your teams and ensuring they do carry across? And are there any specific exa examples around how you're making that de um, decision to bring that forward? Uh, Rachel? Uh, yeah, we actually did a project on it. So, I'm uh, mentoring and supervising one of our Sir Roland Wilson scholars at the moment, um, who's based at ANU doing a PhD on um, his topics, public policy making. He did a really interesting um, uh, bit of qualitative research, lots of interviews with areas that were particularly at the coalface from our department um, uh, in the response to, to COVID and the lockdowns. And so we've, we've actually tried to capture what did we do differently, why did we do it and how do we share it and then pump that out to the rest of the organisation. But I have to say it is difficult because kind of the, uh, the, the pulls and the pushes that you have in an emergency context change quite uh, significantly when you're not in the emergency anymore and the other kind of pulls and pushes start to re-emerge. Um, so... I do think uh, just thinking about how do we retain some of the lessons learned, but I do think we've got a real boost in terms of risk and how we think about risk um, and think about risk in an environmental context in terms of the operating environment and also thinking about flexible work and where are we based and why, why are we set up the way we're set up and should we think differently about that. So we do have some ongoing conversations that, that are useful ones to, to keep having post-COVID. Yeah, uh, sounds like there'll be some interesting insights around that um, PhD output. Alison, anything from your perspective? Yeah, look, the ACT government um, is also looking at what we can capture in terms of the way we've operated, and we have a range of um, uh, projects that are emanating out of our um, central area and chief minister's department, particularly around the flexible work and what our workforce would look like. We had started to move in the ACT public service to activity-based working prior to COVID um, and very much thinking about how we can expand that across the whole of our office portfolio as a way to actually foster collaboration, but also capture some of the um, things that actually retaining some of the options around flexible-based work will make us a better employer of choice. Um, you know, we always have to compete with the Commonwealth Public Service in the ACT Public Service for jobs. So it's part of that um, employee retention and attraction strategy um, is one thing. Um, and I guess, yeah, from the, the technology point of view, I think that, you know, I think we all realise that there is some real efficiencies in having a lot more meetings, um, particularly across jurisdictions in a virtual form and with video, et cetera. I don't think it'll ever replace sometimes getting together and um, so I say the dinners are the most important parts of those ministerial meetings where you can actually talk more informally and video doesn't lend itself to that. But I think we'll be much more efficient in the way we communicate and communicate much more often with our colleagues as we've um, learned to embrace technology a lot better. 
Yeah, there's lots of lots of things for us to reflect on in, in both a, a policy perspective and the way that we're working within an organisation. Um, I, I might, you know, get you to do some self-reflection. Um, what What is something that you learned about yourself in leading others over the last year? So, um, Rachel? Uh, yeah, it was interesting because uh, I was finding, particularly this last lockdown, that I was getting as well as completely exhausted, uh, feeling a bit irritated by the end of a day of back-to-back Zoom meetings and Teams meetings. And I was kind of reflecting on, you know, why why is that? And one of my personal reflections, which I think is a useful insight for me around, you know, my leadership style and how, how I naturally work, is that because um, I'm so used to kind of connecting with people I get a lot of emotional energy out of just the connections that I have day to day. So in meetings with my teams or meetings with my colleagues um, or, you know, um, my ministers and ministers' offices and kind of walking out of those engagements with more emotional energy. And I was finding flicking from Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting and while on those meetings trying to flick, uh, you know, across multiple screens, keeping up with agendas and papers and whatever, um, uh, that I was putting emotional energy and not quite being able to read people and not getting a lot back. So um, while I agree with Alison that, you know, the technology gives you a lot of efficiencies, um, there's a lot of good things about it, uh, I think it is hard to lead people in a purely remote environment. I think there's there's no replacement for that human contact and engagement that you can get when you're actually in the same space as people. So I think whatever flexibility we seek to retain going forward, thinking about different people need different types of engagement and how do we lead teams in highly flexible ways. But, you know, remembering and recognising that um, a lot of us do get that emotional energy from the the face-to-face engagement that we have uh, when we can be in the same space. Yeah, and, and again, just to get built on Rachel, um, a real lesson for me, which I sort of already knew but was just reinforced, is the importance of visible leadership. So of my 2,000 um, employees, actually over half of them were essential workers working, you know, my 800 bus drivers, the people who clean the local shops, etc., are working all the time and um, I made a real effort to get out last year and visit them in their workplaces and got really great feedback and so it's something I'll take with me going forward, that importance of visible work um, leadership um, and trying to prioritise time for that real engagement with your staff. The other thing we did just... uh, Alison's point reminded me we also tried to inject just a little bit of fun as well because, you know, we had a lot of our staff who were just doing it tough, you know, both almost full-time schooling as well as a really busy full-time job as well as just dealing with, you know, being in in lockdown, which a lot of colleagues, um, particularly in New South Wales, Victoria CT, have experienced. Um, and so just kind of remembering to inject a bit of a bit of fun with the the virtual uh, kind of Leonardo to lockdown competitions and stuff like that. It is amazing how creative people can be in their own home in the space of half an hour with what they have around them and with an avocado. So, you know, <laughs> um, I, I think that the kind of human element and, and also um, just remembering to, to inject a bit of humour sometimes into difficult situations. 
yeah, I think nothing, you know, nothing can compare that connection that we do need as, as individuals and employees. And I, I agree, um, Rachel, there, there was the need to connect on that human level. And a lot of the, the HR research over the years talks to the, the need for people to have that purpose, but also the connection with their, their colleagues to really um, have that psychological safety and to be able to deliver, um, you know, what they need to every day. So that's been a, a really, really insightful conversation. So thank you um, for your candid comments. And it's been really interesting to hear around the flexibility that your organisations and you as leaders were able to apply over the last 12 years to deliver some really incredible outcomes. So I'd like to say thank you, Alison and Rachel, for joining us today. Um, we have learned a lot uh, about the important work you and your staff do to keep our cities and infrastructure growing and improving at a time when engagement with our external environments and the services you offer has been limited. Um, so that does bring um, us to the end of today's work with purpose. Um, thank you to our listeners for joining us. Um, and I'll, I'll say goodbye for now. Hope you have a good afternoon. So there you have it. A very big thanks to Michael Sinise, Alison Playford, and Dr. Rachel Bacon. To you, the audience, thank you for coming back once again and tuning in to Work With Purpose. We really do appreciate your ongoing support for the program. Work With Purpose is part of the GovComs podcast network. And if you would like to check out the GovComs podcast, type that name into your favorite podcast browser and it is sure to come up. It covers all of the latest information about government communications, not only here in Australia, but around the world. And if you do happen to come across our social media promotion for Work With Purpose, please, uh, a share, a like, or indeed a review really helps the program to be discovered. And if you do have the time for that, we would much appreciate that. Thanks also to our friends and colleagues here at IPA and indeed the Australian Public Service Commission for their ongoing support in putting the program together. And if you haven't as yet had the chance to listen to the IPA APSC Integrity Series, please make sure that you do. It's hosted by Rena Brunsma of the APSC and features a who's who of the Australian public sector having important conversations about the critical importance of ethics and integrity in being an Australian public servant. A big thanks as well to the team at Content Group for helping to put the program together and a particular thanks to Annabelle Fife and Ben Curry. My name's David Pembroke. We'll be back at the same time in two weeks, but for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission. Thank you.